From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey folks, got a bit of a special episode for you today. Uh, Every fall for the past several years, The Weeds has been going to the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, doing a special live episode there. This year, of course, there is no such live festival for us to go to, uh, but the festival has still been happening virtually, and we were really excited to participate. Uh, What we have for you is a sort of a group interview with Representative Veronica Escobar. Uh, She represents district uh, based in El Paso, Texas, around the border. Uh, We were able to talk with her about the impact of the COVID pandemic on the Latino community, about uh, the situation at the border right now, about the political future of Texas, a lot of really fascinating, interesting issues. Uh, We're really glad to be a part of Texas Tribune Festival every year. Uh, And so here it is. I I think you're going to like this interview. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. We are coming to you not exactly live today from the Texas Tribune Festival, uh, where we have been doing episodes for, for the past several years. Usually we, we come down to Austin, we have some breakfast tacos, it's a great time. Uh, this year, obviously, everything is a little bit different, uh, but I am here with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Dara Lind, and also a special guest, Representative Veronica Escobar. Uh, she represents the 16th Congressional District in Texas which is uh, the El Paso and, and environs. And uh, we're really glad to have you with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Matt. It's totally my privilege. And what you guys usually have when you go to Austin, even though Austinites call them breakfast tacos, they're breakfast burritos, really. <laughs> <laughs> Just FYI. So, right. <laughs> Can you explain this to us? Like, what is what is a West Texas breakfast taco and what makes it different? Well, so to me, a taco is like a regular taco, right? A corn tortilla mm-hmm. with a filling that's fried. In fact, I made some last night. Um, and uh, what, what I get in Austin when I order a breakfast taco is a flour tortilla with the filling wrapped up, which is a burrito. But anyhow, I don't mean to sidetrack. <laughs> my, my, my wife is from San Antonio. So, you know, she has strong feelings about this. And yeah, I have very strong feelings about food in general. <laughs> A lot always in the mix uh, in in Texas. Um, so you know, uh, something you you mentioned uh, b- before the show that that I thought we should talk about is some of the um, disparities in COVID incidents. Uh, we're joking around here, but obviously uh, we're not doing the festival live. This is a very serious uh, situation in the country, and I don't think we've actually talk that much about the incidents in the Latino community, uh, which is, uh, I mean, uh, heavily represented in in your district and obviously in in Texas broadly. Uh, Can can you tell us something about that? Yeah, you know, Matt, and and you're right. I mean, this is a really serious issue, a deadly one, in fact, for minority communities like like mine. Early on in the COVID crisis, uh, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus had a a Zoom conversation with Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is the uh, head of the, the president's task force, COVID task force. And the number one question was, tell us what we can expect the impact to be on Latino communities. And this was probably late March, maybe early April. So this was, you know, this, the everything had just recently been shut down um, and we were still learning a lot. It, you know, it still is the novel coronavirus, but it was even more novel uh, at that point. But something that he said made my jaw drop. He said that literally 
Latino communities are as vulnerable to getting sick and dying from COVID as are people in assisted living facilities and nursing homes. That's how vulnerable Latinos are. And so, you know, the, the, that is an alarm that, that uh, went off for all of us. I began sounding the alarm in El Paso and in Texas that we really needed a specific strategy for Latino communities. But as you all know, in Texas, we had a governor whose emphasis was an economic recovery instead of a healthcare recovery. Governor Greg Abbott chose to open up the state of Texas when we were not even at 1% of testing. We had not even tested 1% of the population. There was no plan in place for vulnerable communities, neither you know the, the assisted living facilities and nursing homes, nor vulnerable communities that uh, you know, are, are, are heavily populated by Latinos or African-Americans. And so we, we immediately became a hotspot and unfortunately things have not changed. And the, the, while we're seeing a leveling off and, and that has changed and that's improving a little bit, although, you know, we have to wait and see what's going to happen as the cold weather comes in. What has not changed is the disproportionate impact on minorities and minority communities. We are uh, communities that mostly have essential workers, communities where Latinos have a high incidence of comorbidities and very little access to health insurance. And in the state of Texas, where we have state leaders fighting to basically do away with the Affordable Care Act, we are obviously not a state that expanded access to health insurance under the Affordable Care Act. So any way that you look at it, any way you slice it, it has been absolutely devastating for Latinos, especially Latinos in Texas. So t- Texas did not do a Medicaid expansion is, is what you were referring to there, right? That's so right. that's, I mean, Texas is the the second largest state uh, and the union has a relatively high poverty rate. And so probably the, the biggest slice of uninsured people, what, one of the biggest slices left in the country is the Texas and Florida uh, Medicaid expansion eligible populations where, where that hasn't been done. Now, I wonder, do you know what accounts for the sort of disproportionate vulnerability in the Latino community? Is it about the occupational structure? Is overcrowded housing? What what kind of situations are we looking at? It's really three things, Matt. Number one, you're right, the employment situation. Essential workers didn't have the luxury of staying home and working behind a laptop or a computer. That just did, did not exist for many Latinos. Secondly, we are sicker because of generations of lack of access to health coverage and health insurance. We have more, more comorbidities. So, for example, you know, more folks that have diabetes and heart disease or, you know, various different combinations of deadly diseases. And third, we don't have uh, we have less of less access to health insurance and to primary health care than white communities. And, you know, I learned something really interesting last week that that just tells you how preventable this vulnerability is. We had an armed services committee hearing uh, where the focus was the the DOD's uh, work on COVID. And so, you know, there were a lot of questions about PPE and other things. So the question that I asked, because I was so curious, because as we know, people in, in the military, our service, active service members have access to health care when they are in active service. So I asked are you all keeping in the military, are you all keeping demographic data? And the answer was yes, we are keeping demographic data. My my follow-up question was, are you finding the same, um, essentially the same disproportionate impact among our Latino service members that you are, that we see out in the civilian world? Their answer was fascinating, but not surprising. They said, 
actually know because they have access to healthcare. That was their response. Mm. And so the the incredible tragedy of so much. And, you know, obviously it's, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that, but it, it just really underlies the needlessness of so many deaths. Um, you know, we, so much of this could have been prevented, especially for vulnerable populations. Um, and so it just compounds that tragedy. One of the challenges you mentioned a little bit about how Governor Abbott has really discouraged localities from making their own decisions on coronavirus. That's an experience that people have had in Austin, Dallas, Houston. Can you talk a little bit about how challenging it has been or not to work with state level government and state level leadership on this issue when you are hearing time and again that what the governor values, as you said, is an economic comeback? I have not dealt with the governor directly, but I have been in contact with the Office of Emergency Management at the state level and at the local level, because that's where, you know, sort of all, all of the action comes through. And uh, early on, had a phone conversation when I when after speaking with Dr. Fauci, they're the folks that I wanted to sound the alarm to, to say, look, this is what Dr. Fauci has told us. It should be alarming to all of us. We need a specific plan. Um, the only way to address the vulnerability, according to Dr. Fauci, and I shared this with the state, was to flood vulnerable communities with resources. So in other words, the, you know, before we reopened, and I offered these suggestions, before reopening, all essential workers should be tested. That's when you should do aggressive and robust testing and tracing because you're, you know, you're able to track folks who go home and, and are in contact with their family, making sure that, you know, folks who are asymptomatic can get tested. And actually, we, we really didn't have a, a target on all essential workers, but the, the, more testing was kind of slow rolled. And in fact, it felt almost as though in, in the, the early period of the, the pandemic that folks like Governor Abbott and President Trump really didn't want testing because if the numbers came back high, you know, th they saw that as a negative. You know, and so early on when the governor reopened very quickly in his desire to get the economy back on track um, and, and we were seeing more positive cases, he didn't blame the reopening. He blamed the fact that there were more uh, tests that were being provided to the public. And so it's it's been this incredibly frustrating experience to have folks in office who are ignoring the alarms that are going off all around us and are really far more interested in saving the economy than in saving lives. Something that is, I think, generally a problem when we talk about uh, disparate impacts, but that has really been clear through this pandemic, especially with the concentration of Latinos in like certain essential occupations, is that when you talk about the disparity, it can become very easy to kind of pathologize, right? Like in various places, certainly in the, the upper Midwest and also kind of down here in the South, there's been a kind of tendency to say, well, the problem is that there are too many that like Latinos don't live healthily, that they live too close together. And so they're really getting it. They're not getting it from from work. They're, it's not an issue of workplace conditions. They're just getting it from home. And I think, you know, related to that, a narrative has taken hold among, you know, some on the left and center left that Republicans stopped caring about the coronavirus once it became clear that it would disproportionately impact Black and Latino communities. And like, without litigating the like, what was in people's hearts or any of that, it is there, there is attention. How do you call attention to the, the disparate impacts that something is having on particular underserved communities without making it seem like a Latino issue or encouraging people to ignore it if, as if it doesn't apply to them? Yeah, Dara, that is has been so frustrating for me as well. And I, I want to give you an example. And I think the root problem is, is that we have far too many people who are 
making statements, people who have a bully pulpit who are making statements based on assumptions instead of the information we have in front of us. And so I'll give you an example, an El Paso example that um, I find frustrating. So a couple weeks ago, Bob Moore, who many of you are probably familiar with, um, great, amazing journalist who started an online news source called El Paso Matters, he had this incredible story about how the city of El Paso for months had not enforced any of the rules, basically, you know, and so bars were were operating, you know, if, if they're supposed to at least pretend that they're serving food, there were bars operating without doing that, without enforcing any kind of social distancing or, or mask wearing, uh, you know, when you're not eating or drinking and kind of, you know, documented the spike in the cases that happened when our local government chose not to enforce the rules. Well, what happens when you don't enforce the rules, you know, is that more than likely people aren't going to follow the rules in bars and, and other places where they're closely confined. So there was that great story. And then a week later, you have the, the mayor of the city of El Paso saying, we don't want another spike in our COVID cases during this Labor Day weekend, you know, sort of blaming families who get together. And th there's just something in that that is so offensive to me because the, the, it, it feeds that assumption that, oh, well, you know, Hispanic families, they just can't stay away from each other. And, the, you know, they're going to go ahead and have parties, et cetera. And yet, what about the local government's obligation to enforce the rules to pre prevent the spread? We saw spikes, you know, in part because of, of that unwillingness. How do you address that from a local government perspective? You're you're in Congress now, but you were in local government for a long time. You were you were county judge, which I I know enough about Texas. It's not a judge; it's a <laughs> county executive. Um, you know, when uh, here in 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 D.C., you know, my my son is not able to go to kindergarten, but bars and restaurants are open, and I find it very frustrating. But when I you know speak to people. In mayor's offices all around the country, they say, look, like we need we need the revenue that comes in from, from these businesses and people need the jobs. We can't just keep these things closed down. We're going to have people out in the streets, people losing their homes. We're going to have to cut, you know, all of our essential services if we, if we don't have the sales taxes coming in. I mean, how, how how would you think about striking that kind of balance? I know, you know, it is so incredibly tough because believe me, I mean, I hear about, I see, and I feel the pain in the community. Um, but here's the conundrum that isn't quite a conundrum that when you kind of just look at things objectively, you we, we all should be able to agree, we're not going to solve the economic crisis until we solve the health crisis. You know, so th this idea that, oh, well, let's, if we can just ignore the health crisis or somehow just hope it goes away, which I guess is the president's strategy, then, um, you know, th th let's focus on the economy. But th the fact of the matter is you're not going to have consumer confidence until people feel safe. And so, you know, the, from the get-go, there should have been obviously a national testing strategy. I heard from small businesses when the state was reopening, you know, fairly quickly, I heard from small businesses saying, asking me, what, what should I do? Like, I, I, I'm not a health expert. H how should I approach this? Very little guidance from the state, very little guidance from the CDC. We now know what, you know, what was going on at the CDC and then that there was an effort to deliberately prevent good information from getting out there. But the, the, this, again, kind of goes back to what I said about the needlessness of this tragedy. Yes, there was going to be a tragedy, obviously, but so the, the exponential pain has been something that was preventable. So we, we can't go back and, and change history, but what do we do going forward? We still should have a national testing strategy. That 
is still something that we absolutely need. There should be, um, you know, all sorts of rigorous, regular testing in schools, in universities, anywhere that people are going to be congregating on a regular basis. It's not hard. Other countries have figured it out. And then as you, as you do regular, robust, consistent trace, uh, testing, you do the tracing that follows it because the tracing is what leads you to other pockets so that you can mitigate the spread. What is so unbelievable is that we have not learned the lessons of the successes in other parts of the world. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. As we approach the election and the question of how people can safely vote in the election and, you know, whether how that's going to interact with the issues going on with the Postal Service and all that, Latinos are, have, have had kind of uneven rates of electoral participation. And certainly the question of like mobilizing Texas Latinos has been, you know, at the forefront of Democratic efforts there for several cycles the conventional wisdom tends to be that you need a very kind of high touch mobilized outreach strategy to like be very present in people's lives and encourage them to vote. Are you concerned that this is going to like have that this is going to have another negative impact on Latino political participation? And do you see the kind of political structure trying to adapt to that in ways that are going to successfully reach out to voters? I am worried and I don't think that we have adapted quickly enough. Here's what happens Anyway, so here's here's an obstacle that Latino communities like El Paso face anyway. We are a blue county. And as a result, we frequently get written off by either statewide candidates or presidential candidates because, oh, well, you're blue. We've got to focus on those seats that we need to flip or those places we need to protect. So there's very little investment that goes into our community from presidential races or statewide races as a result. I mean, we rarely, if ever, see commercials for presidents. Although, you know, because we share a market with New Mexico, Southern New Mexico, you know, we, when, when there's a battle there, we get the morsels, you know, (laughs) but there's no major investment. And so my, feeling is, is that over the years, that's part of what has dampened turnout or dampened enthusiasm. El Paso has historically had very low voter turnout. Same thing goes for almost every county on the Texas-Mexico border. Two years ago, when my good friend Beto was running for uh, U.S. Senate, 
after I won my primary, because yes, blue district. And so the primary is the bloodiest part of the battle. I had a Republican opponent, but I wanted to use my resources along the border. I, you know, I, I have been and still am so deeply offended by Donald Trump and by his enablers that my view was if the border doesn't turn out in record numbers in 2018, shame on us. But we weren't going to get any outside resources, so it's on us. And so my campaign and I collaborated with grassroots folks, with their local Democratic parties, with Beto's campaign, with other campaigns. And we had we we, we put together this amazing week long border bus tour where we chartered a bus and I got 35 of my most enthusiastic supporters and volunteers. We boarded that bus and we went county to county and we had coordinated all of this out. We had you know worked for like a month on it. In every county, we had coordinated uh, with Beto's campaign to have joint rallies. We invited all the local candidates, the up and down the ballot, all the Dems. It was amazing. Then we canvassed. And so we were targeting low propensity Democratic voters, mostly Latino, knocking on their doors. And so if I was in Laredo, I was walking with a Laredo resident. If I was in McAllen, I was walking with a McAllen resident. And we were knocking on doors together and the local resident would introduce themselves to the person on the other side of that door. And then I would say, hi, I'm Veronica. And I drove all the way from El Paso to tell you that your vote matters. And it was amazing. And it was the most inspiring thing. Then we drove all the way back. Our bus stopped. We had some issues with the bus coming and going, but it didn't dampen our spirits. We were, it was amazing. And then that fall, my campaign and I focused again in El Paso, only on low propensity, not only, but mostly on low propensity Democratic voters. Well, we broke turnouts in all the counties that we worked with, all the counties we collaborated with, El Paso included, we more than doubled turnout. That had a lot to do with a lot of things, but we didn't wait for it to happen organically. We're doing that again. Um, we had a virtual, I have my my stats with me that I want to read you. We had a virtual border bus tour um, with Beto, Beto and myself. We had 600 volunteers and over the course of a week, these all border counties, mostly Latino, low propensity Dems, we made 368,346 calls. We sent 439,759 texts and we ID'd voters. So we ID'd the Biden voters so that we can go back and get them, make sure they get out to vote. We ID'd Trump voters not going to call them back. Um, and then we ID'd undecideds who are ripe for the picking. So we, it's just going to take resources to get them out. But Dara, you're right. Like it's a brand new world, COVID. We've got to think of different strategies. TV alone is not going to do it. We can't knock on their doors. People are getting sick of all the calls. So we've got to do other things like lit drop, you know, knock on people's doors, put literature, wave to them from afar, you know, the, the things that will still tell voters, especially Latinos who are rarely targeted, that that they matter and that their voice matters and their vote matters more than ever. Something that that I've been looking at over over the summer is, you know, there's some indications that President Trump has actually gained a little bit of of Latino support relative to where he was uh, four years ago, even as he's gone down quite a bit with with white voters. Um, and so, you know, I wonder why why you think that is and how that's playing in. I think for a long time, Democrats had sort of aspirations of being competitive statewide in Texas, and that's maybe starting to to happen now, but it's really seems like that's largely been driven by changes in in the suburbs of the big cities rather than engagement in the valley or or Latino population growth. And you know, I, I wonder what you think's going on there with, with the message, what what's what's not working. Yeah, it's depressing. But this is what happens when we don't, as a party, and when candidates don't consistently reach out to Latino voters. I will tell you, a lot of the low propensity Dem voters that I have reached out to over the years, 
these are folks who have two jobs. These are folks who are worried about how they're going to pay for their kids' college, worried about putting, you know, food on the table. Politics is mostly a luxury for a lot of the low propensity Dem voters that I have spoken to over the last, I would say the last four years. And those conversations with them are tough because they feel disaffected. They feel like, you know, the, the uh, rightfully so, like folks aren't hustling for their votes. You know, m- many of us are like, oh my God, like kids in cages isn't enough, <laughs> you know, for, but, but the, the, their, their priorities are so immediate with their own families. And so I get it. I, I absolutely get it. If I had to worry about getting home, making sure that, uh, you know, that, that we had enough food in, the fridge and had enough time for a nap and a shower to get to my second job. You know, these are the immediate things that they worry about, but it doesn't mean that they're not reachable. This is why they're, I think in many ways, sort of low hanging fruit for the Trump folks. It's two issues that I've heard over and over abortion and guns. And so this idea that especially for a lot of Catholic Latino in in Texas. I haven't done canvassing outside of Texas. I haven't canvassed uh, Florida Latinos. And so what I hear frequently is uh, is about the, the abortion issue. I'm hearing more about the gun issue, but to me, when you spend the time and you, and you, you listen to them, but you also talk to these voters and you talk about broader issues like the economy and like healthcare that resonates with them as well. And either as significantly or even more significantly. So it, to me, it goes to show we've just got to spend the time and the resources. That's what the border bus tour was about. That's what my outreach to low propensity Dems in El Paso is about making sure that we're having those conversations and putting the resources in to bringing home people who would normally be Democrats. Now, that's not true for everybody. I will tell you, I have come across and spoken with people who have a lot of internalized racism. That is shocking. And and the things that, that some Latinos have said to me about immigrants or about other Latinos, I'm like, Oh my God. Wow. Okay. Bye-bye. I'm moving on. I like, there's no change in this, you know? And so frankly, the president's racism appeals to people who, who have internalized that racism. Is that with, with regard to asylum seekers at the border primarily that that you're thinking of? Yeah, I had some I've had some painful conversations about that with other Latinos who, again, are the low propensity Democrats who were trying to bring back into the fold, who said, you know, I don't understand why they can't just wait in line or I I don't understand. Like, uh, buddy, there's no line. <laughs> there's there's no line for them to stand in, you know, and, and when you're running for your life, if you were running for your life, you would do absolutely everything to save your child as well. And it's. Some of those folks who, who do buy into the xenophobia and it's, and it's, it, it is really, truly heartbreaking, it, especially some who are, you know, I've had these conversations with monolingual Spanish speaking Latinos who have told me, vamos a votar por Trump. And I'm just like, oh my God. I, I just, it, it is, it is really, it's been heartbreaking, but I, but I don't, I don't, I don't want to be a big downer because I have to tell you the numbers generally the, in the ID program. And, and this is Beto's ID, Beto work is running powered by the people all over the state to ID these voters. The good news is the Biden team really, the, the ticket really has truly has a fighting chance in Texas. I do believe that given adequate resources and attention, Texas could and would flip this year. Thinking about that more broadly, when you talk, you mentioned how uh, talking about kitchen table issues has been something that's proven effective with uh, talking to your constituents. Are you thinking about turning people from non-voters into voters or attempting to flip back people who may be 
inter- maybe independent conservative leaning, especially social conservatives. I think that's what we've seen um, among African-Americans is that there are a lot of small C conservative African-American voters who do not in turn then vote for Republicans. Is that what you're seeing on the voters that you talk to? So Jane, it's a combo. So yeah, we're reaching out to people who at one point voted Dem, but then either stopped going to the polls altogether over the last few years or have like a history of back and forth. And so you know that they're semi-independent or they are, I think, lost momentarily. Um, and we've just got to bring them back. And so, the, the yeah, those are the folks. We're spending significant resources in El Paso. You know, we're, we're also, of course, targeting our hardcore Dems, our, the, you know, the, the make sure that they know our message and what we've done. But the resources, I'm definitely spending far more resources on targeting those folks to grow the base, to help secure a win for a President Biden and a Vice President Harris. You know, it's it's because in the absence, again, of outside resources, it's up to us, I think, to mobilize our own communities and make sure that our communities deliver. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. I wanted to pivot uh, a little bit and talk about the situation at at the border um, right now. This is something that, you know, there was tremendous national attention to for a little while, both Trump talking about, you know, this caravan that was going to do us all in. And then, you know, progressives really outraged by family separation, uh, things like that. It's it's fallen off the national media radar to some extent. Uh, but I mean, I know Dara covers this, this very heavily. And uh, my understanding is that the Trump administration has really used the pandemic to sort of transform what policy looks like at the border in a way that I think a lot of people you know, who aren't close to it, don't really realize, right? But he's he's essentially now gotten to to live his dream of of completely shutting it down. Yeah, absolutely. And I've I've told folks, um, reporters and colleagues and you know, anyone who will listen, that it's things have not gotten better at the border. They have in many respects gotten far worse. This is a president and an administration that we knew going in what his intention was. It was about, it wasn't make America great again. It was make America white again and, you know, make America non-immigrant basically. And he has done everything in his power to erode, not just the privileges and rights that legal immigrants have earned, but also obviously completely tearing apart the asylum system that is intended to protect asylum seekers, to make it so that they can't even request asylum protection. And any excuse that he gets, whether the excuse is, oh, there are caravans, as you mentioned. Well, and there are caravans. P.S. They're just the white nationalists that are heading into communities with their guns. Those are the caravans that we have to worry about as Americans. But it was like first, oh, there are caravans coming from uh, Central America. Then it was all of that he used, it exploited the arrivals of refugees and asylum seekers. He exploited that situation in order to sow fear and division and uh, to really fuel hatred and further his xenophobic efforts. The wall, like, okay, now we really got to build the wall. Let's steal money from the military to build the wall to MPP migrant protection protocols, which is the, you know, the remain in Mexico policy, which still today there are people, vulnerable migrants waiting for their day 
in American immigration court so that they can fight for their right to asylum. There's still people waiting in Mexico for that, delaying their court dates, not giving people information, putting them at risk. And now we have the rapid expulsions that he claims, his administration claims, they have to utilize because of the pandemic. We also, by the way, what we're seeing in El Paso and in other parts of the border, I'm certain, is a literal shutting down of the border. As the border is being shut to only essential travel, what we're seeing is fewer and fewer lanes that are being opened as a deterrent, basically, even for those who have legitimate entry into the U.S. back and forth. So he he absolutely is executing his vision of shutting down the border. Uh, you know, and we would not have to shut down the the, the lanes at our ports of entry if we had a binational COVID plan. You know, if, if, if leaders came together, and I've been calling on that, um, have been sharing with leadership here in Washington, the need for a binational strategy, have talked about it at the local level with leaders on both sides of the border, have talked about it at the state level, had a meeting a couple weeks ago, a virtual meeting with the head of the U.S.-Mexico Border Health uh, commission that there needs to be a national, an inter- a binational COVID strategy so that we protect trade and our economy, but also we are a, a community completely inter- interwoven, a region completely interwoven, and we cannot allow the Trump administration to continue to use things like the pandemic as, as a, an excuse to not just his horrific anti-immigrant policies, but also to to shut down legitimate travel uh, at our ports of entry. I definitely do want to talk about ports of entry. But first, I was hoping that you could maybe talk about the rapid expulsion policy in a little more detail, because I think this is something that, you know, a lot of people haven't, because it's happened in the midst of everything else, a lot of people haven't really been paying attention to. And, you know, it's also true that it's been hard to get information about it. You know, your office in a tradition that you, you know, inherited from Representative O'Rourke has like done some on the, you know, has treated kind of keeping track of what's happening on the ground along the, you know, along your segment of the border as a constituent services thing. But it has seemed that there's it's just so much harder to get information now than it was. So what are you seeing and what does this policy actually look like on the ground? And you're right, Dara, a lot of people don't even know about it. And so what it is for for folks who are unfamiliar with it is if you are arriving at the border between ports, um, so, you know, not at the ports, but you present yourself to a Border Patrol agent between the ports and you say either, you know, I, I, I want to request asylum protection or I'm turning myself in, you know, I would like to get in and, 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 uh, talk to a lawyer regardless, you know, so you're undocumented. Border Patrol agents are instructed to quickly look up whether you have a criminal history. And if you don't have a criminal history, you are quote unquote processed generally within about 90 minutes. And that processing is that background check. And if you don't have a, a, a a criminal history, you are expelled back into Mexico. And we we have found that children are being expelled, vulnerable children. And we don't believe that people are able to to, to gain any kind of asylum protection. The, the process has so been eroded. But I think also, you know, one of the things that that I have spoken uh, to folks about here in D.C. is this is a bad practice in a, an era of a pandemic because what we're seeing is it's like a revolving door. If a migrant can't get in one way, they will attempt at a, somewhere else at another part of the border. And so we're just having agents and migrants come into contact with one another over and over again. And in between, those migrants obviously become fuel for the cartels. Like all we do is we continue to create opportunities for the cartels to take advantage of these vulnerable people where they can make a little bit more money. I'll transport you to another part of the port or another part of the border. And so we're, like we're basically 
having people come into close contact with one another and then come re-contact with border patrol agents who then go home to their families and into the community. It, it makes absolutely no sense from a health perspective, if that's the only lens you were looking at this through. But of course, you know, we, we are looking, most of us look at it through a broader lens about a violation of human rights, a violation of, of people's fundamental right to request asylum and an abuse of authority is, is, is my perspective. But if, if, if all we talk about is the health component that you're making things, this policy makes things much worse. So I, I am wondering in terms of like when we talk about this issue, because as you were saying earlier, there are people for whom this is just not a, an area of, you know, not everyone cares quite as much about this stuff as you and I do. Um, and, you know, there are certainly people who who see it as polarizing or a either an issue that doesn't affect them or it's kind of more trouble than it's worth for a lot of people. And how do you read the current lack of attention to what's going on on the border compared to, say, a year ago? And do you think that it's important to, you know, c continue to raise the profile of what's going on? Or do you think that you know, politically speaking, it's probably better for your party to kind of continue to hit pocketbook issues first. You know, I, I am a big believer that the party should lean into this issue. I don't believe that most Americans want to see kids in cages. I, I think most Americans, even conservative Americans, want a solution. You know, they want this issue addressed. I think the hardline Trump voters love the cruelty, I honestly, I mean, I think that that the cruelty is the point for them. But I would like to believe that most of America doesn't believe in the cruelty. And I think there's polling that demonstrates that, that that shows that 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 people want to see comprehensive immigration reform and that they're uncomfortable with the Trump administration's approach to immigration. When I've talked to moderates and, and when I've talked to, to voters, you know, on the on the campaign side who are like, oh, my God, we just can't take everybody in. Right. I totally understand that. But Donald Trump has yet to find a solution. None of what he's done, not the wall, not remain in Mexico, not the rapid expulsions, not children in cages, not family separation. None of that has stemmed the flow. So until we address the root causes, until we have leaders who will work throughout the hemisphere, work hand in hand together collaboratively to address the climate crisis that is driving some of this, to address the drug wars that fuel some of this, drugs that are consumed by the American public. You know, until we get to the root causes, then are we going to continue to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on things that don't work? Like, how can that make sense to any American voter or taxpayer? And so I feel like it's it's how we talk about these things. So my point is, like, like when I'm talking to voters and I'm saying, you know, the, the until we're addressing the root causes, we're going to keep seeing and and we're probably going to see an increase in refugees running for their lives, fleeing famine, fleeing violence. So isn't it about time we have leadership that can get to the root causes? And I feel like there is a way to talk to voters about this issue and to talk to taxpayers about this issue. And it's my belief that Democrats should be leaning in on that. So I do want to kind of talk a little bit about salience per se, because, you know, you keep coming back to the kind of shorthand phrase kids in cages, which has obviously been like a very powerful. I don't want to say meme because that's trivializing, but like in the literal term of, you know, an idea that that is shared among among people and that kind of takes on a life of its own. It's become a very powerful meme within Democratic and center left circles. And you and I both know that like the problem right now isn't generally kids in cages because of the rapid expulsion policy. And before that, you know, remain in Mexico and and the other kind of pilots is. But it, it seems like it seems like Trump externalized it and that when our officials were keeping kids in cages, Americans were very 
exercised about it, right? It became a not-in-our-name kind of thing, this-is-not-who-we-are kind of thing. But it, but it feels like the president and, and Stephen Miller and the Border Patrol have successfully solved what was sort of bothering, I don't know, like middle-class white liberals about this, which is that it was happening in our country by our people. And if we can get the Mexican or Guatemalan authorities to keep people maybe not in cages, but in squalid refugee camps, and if the Border Patrol can just turn them back right away, he's sort of demobilized people on this subject. And and to me, that speaks to the fact that, you know, Democrats, I mean, I think I think you're right, right? People people didn't like the cruelty of that. I mean, some people did, but but most people didn't. But there's not a real answer, I think, on the question of who who do we take? Like who can come to the United States and who can't? Because, you know, these stories are very sad. Uh, but I, I was in, um, I guess it was it was last year sometime. I was in San Antonio. I was visiting my wife's family, but I tried to dabble in a little reporting. Um, and it, and it was true that you started seeing asylum seekers coming, you know, not just from Mexico, not just from Central America, but people from the Congo who had transited to South America and had then made this incredibly arduous journey to the border. And then they were there in San Antonio because there's more translators, I guess, there than in McAllen. And they were trying to make it ultimately to Portland, Maine, uh, which I guess is where there's a there's a Congolese community. And I'm incredibly pro-immigration, pro-immigrant person, but I do think it it's hard to avoid the conclusion that that's not a good system, right? That people should not be on this crazy trip through Panama and dealing with all these smugglers, right? That if if we want to have refugees, like there's a there's a process for that. And you know, so it's it's hard for me to know, like, what exactly Democrats are saying about this issue. Well, and I'll be candid. I, I think Democrats are not saying much. And and I think part of why Democrats are not saying much and, th- you know, I do not agree with this approach. I think we should talk about it. And I think it's again, I think we should lean in. It is a tough issue to talk about. It's something really difficult to tackle, you know, and, and to tell a voter, for example, well, you know, we should be addressing the root causes and let's talk about the climate crisis and let's talk about, you know, the famine that comes from it. And let's talk about drugs. It's a lot, you know, and and I think I think you're right, Matt, like a lot of people are like, well, we just we can't take everybody in. I hear that a lot and we can't solve everybody's problems. And, you know, America can't be the uh, landing place for everyone. But here's here's what we do need to acknowledge as a country. And this is where I feel like we we need to hold a mirror up to ourselves um, and be honest with ourselves, which I know is a tall order. But when we were getting the Central American families who were coming in late 2017, you know, all the way until MPP was initiated, they were being of course, held in horrific conditions in El Paso. I mean, you all know about uh, families that were held outside, sleeping on rocks under the, you know, under the bridge, the port of entry, or these horrific concrete cells, uh, you know, filled. It's just, you'd look in the windows and there was a sea of, of humanity, like these awful conditions. And then they'd be released and our volunteers in the community, led by Ruben Garcia of Annunciation House in El Paso, had the the you know these hospitality centers where volunteers would would provide meals and clothes, and you know uh, uh, doctors and nurses would show up and provide care. And so you know, as a volunteer, I I made meals, I buy meals, I'd go serve meals, I. I'd sometimes sit and eat with the migrants if, you know, if, if we were done serving everybody and I'd sit and, and I'd ask them, you know, where did you come from? And, how, you know, where are you headed? And uh, how long was your journey? You know, you, you learn a lot about what they're going through. The vast, I would tell you probably 90% of the migrants that I spoke to during that time, they 
all, 90% of them had a family member in the U.S., either a husband, a wife, a child, a parent who had been in three main areas of industry, either meatpacking, agriculture, or construction. These are the people putting food on our table. These are the people building our communities and they want to be reunited with their family. Oh my God. You know, and so here we are saying, you know, yes, we're okay with American corporations getting wealthy off of migrant labor, making their profits. We're okay eating the food that, you know, came to us as a result of backbreaking work in the fields. You know, we're okay eating, you know, for, for non-vegetarians, I'm a vegetarian, so I don't eat this, but <laughs> eating my burger um, or my bacon that came from a slaughterhouse that, you know, employed migrants, but I don't want them to be with their children. I don't want their wife to come join them. The, you know, the, the, we, we have to have that conversation as a country. Are we okay with that? Now there's going to be a large contingent that will say no, and they shouldn't be working illegally. And, you know, that's why we need ice raids, et cetera, et cetera. I've had conversations with some of those farmers, with some of the folks who run these companies, and they'll say, I've raised salaries. I've like, I've done everything possible. This was pre-COVID to hire people and I can't hire folks to replace them. We just, it is a difficult, long conversation and it's complicated. And so maybe that's why people are like, well, let's just talk about something else. Bringing up kind of Annunciation House and the volunteer network of people who were, you know, super mobilized and are interested in kind of providing a support network, even regardless of how the the government is treating people. It kind of, it's interesting to me because my only visit to those welcome centers was in, I guess, October of last year. So like after MPP had gone border wide and it was this huge empty space, mostly empty, you know, a few Brazilians because Brazilians were not yet in MPP. They would be put, they would be put in later and some of the African immigrants, but like because the changes have been so rapid, I mean, even I was thinking before we uh, started taping, like, I assume you've been in Congress longer than you have because there have been so many successive border regimes that, you know, know. we've been trying to, that like, that you and your colleagues and I and my colleagues have been trying to figure out from our respective sides. Um, But, you know, that kind of brings us back to a certain extent indirectly to what you're saying earlier about ports of entry, because one of the effects of the rapid expulsion strategy is that it's just harder for the volunteers on this side of the border to get to the communities they're trying to serve. And I'm wondering, like, yes, that sounds like a very compelling reason to let people travel. Yes, people who, you know, have family on the other side of the border or who regularly need to cross the border for, you know, for their work or for to just like buy the buy the most affordable groceries, that kind of thing. Like there are lots of compelling individual reasons, but at the same time, you know, it does seem like there's a good epidemiological case for minimizing cross-border movement generally, especially when Mexico has, you know, especially when like each country has certainly failed to contain its own epidemic, but Mexico does appear right now to be in a very, very bad position. How do you kind of weigh those two competing goals cuz you know it's it's i'm sure that you get a lot of complaints from people who are being restricted as they're shutting down lanes but there is, you can kind of see a collective argument there so how do you weigh those you're absolutely right and you know it's it's but to me it's like um you know if we're trying to reopen cautiously and try to preserve the economy as best we can and if if we've agreed we can't stay shut down forever and and going back to my comment before like you've got to attack the health crisis first that, that's that's why we need a binational covid strategy let's say things get better in the us and and that we flatten the curve and and we we're somehow able to overcome it let's say it takes 6 months who knows how long it'll take and mexico is not up to par and Mexico's cases are still rising or they're still not doing a good enough job. The case might be even under a democratic president, like, oh, let's, you, we've got to be careful. We can't, you know, we've got, we've got to close ourselves off. 
we can't live like that. We cannot live like that in a border community. And so everything that I've heard from the Mexican side, from, from my contacts in Mexico, is that Mexico isn't doing a better job of testing and tracing because Mexico doesn't have the resources. So my view is if we can adequately fund the U.S.-Mexico Border Health Commission or, or NGOs to, to do this, I mean, my God, Trump sent ventilators to Russia. Surely we can help with testing with our neighbor, who's, who, who is our most significant trading partner for the Southern states, states like Texas. And so if the, you know, the, the, I'm hoping that on the economic front, that will be compelling. You know, for me, I, we've, we've, we've got to let, people be able to, to, you know, come and visit their doctors or, or do whatever that they need to do. We are one region and there's certain aspects of, of, of border life that as careful as you want to be, you know, just like in, in our daily lives here in the U S there's a certain amount of it that, that has to continue, but you've got to address the health crisis. And so you do that with a binational plan where you work in concert with one another, but we don't have a president that's willing to do that. So without a binational COVID plan, the, the U.S. might be doing well. If Mexico's not doing well, I'm afraid we won't reopen the border. So we've 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 got to have a good binational strategy. We have to. All right. I think we're going to let that be the the last word. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, Texas 16th Congressional District. Uh, thanks, as always, to the Texas Tribune Festival for, uh, I guess, not really having us down to Texas, but it's a great for, festival. For it's having, a great show. For now owing us so that next time you're going to have to bring us down to Texas. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we're all having tacos at home or burritos, as the case may be. <laughs> um, so thanks so much. Much. Uh, thanks seriously to, to the Texas Tribune. Thanks to our producer, uh, Jeffrey Geld. Thanks to, to the Congresswoman. And uh, the Weeds will be back on Friday. More to do's, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.